Shalom and welcome to Product Nation, a weekly podcast by product managers in Silicon Valley covering how tech products get created and executed by some of the most accomplished product experts in the world. I'm Ophir Barav and today with me and my co-host Nir Paz, we welcome Aviad Finkovezki. Neil, Shana Tova, Mashalcha. All good, how are you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So, a, a fun series of late. Well, recently, I would say, I don't know, two months ago, started watching The Simpsons from episode one, season one. So, I'm still, still watching it. It's kind of funny to see how some jokes would definitely not pass today. Who <laughs> so. to gave us the idea about that is actually Aviad. Yeah, so we started to do that with the kids during the Corona times, but apparently, luckily, we started from the latest seasons. So maybe I'll need to change course once we get to a less politically correct every season <laughs> with my kids. They might be too young for that. Aviad, so tell us about yourself. Sure. Hi, guys. So my name is Aviad Minkovetsky. I'm the Chief Product Officer at Hippo Insurance. I've been with the company since January 2016 uh, when I joined right after the seed round to lead the product and to build a product itself and the product team at the company. Prior to that, I was doing product management at LinkedIn. Before that, I did my MBA here around the corner at Stanford. And in my past life, I was about 10 years in this military intelligence in the Shimon time organization. You can see how the dots connect perfectly to a career in insurance. It goes without saying. So how did you get started with insurance? Okay, so I was at LinkedIn until uh, the end of 2015. And at that point, I felt that I was ready to move to the next step in my career. I was basically looking around, talking to several interesting companies, different states. Ages, uh, starting from mid-stage to later stage, but nothing really got me super excited. And then uh, I was basically introduced to our CEO, and I was very much intrigued, not that much, obviously, by the insurance concept itself, but mostly about the opportunity to make an impact on such a large, outdated, but yet so critically important industry that is affecting the life of so many people. The research that I've done back then showed to me that clearly there was a lot to be accomplished and a lot to be improved. I still remember the conversation when I was debating whether I want to join this adventure. I had this conversation with my wife and I remember telling her, hey, listen, I'm sure that somebody is going to do something about it. It cannot stay the way it currently is back at the end of 2015. Obviously, back then it was early and I couldn't tell if we would be one of the companies that would make this innovation. But so far, it's been a great journey and far exceeded my initial expectations. So what exactly is the innovation, if you can? detailed? Yeah, sure. So it basically breaks down to three main areas. The first one is making the quoting and the purchase experience much more simplified for the user. Typical experience with a traditional insurance company entail answering an average of 70 questions, including the slope your house is built on, the distance from a fire hydrant, and all this fun stuff. Keep in mind, in most cases, you are just in the process of buying the home, so you don't even remember the layout or where the bathroom is. In our case, we improved the process by integrating with multiple data sources, making it much more streamlined experience. And surprise, you can actually buy online while most traditional companies ask you to call their agents. Second, we actually innovated on the insurance product itself. Most traditional insurance companies fail to protect for stuff that people care about in the 21st century, such as your home office, your electronics, that is usually capped by $2,000, which you are likely to have more than that in your backpack. Other stuff, my favorite one, one of the most outdated coverages is that they offer coverage for stock and bond certificates you might have in a safe in your wall because it was a thing in the 50s. But obviously, you're paying for something that you don't really need in 2020. So that's the second area. And obviously, it goes much deeper than that. And the third area, which I think is the most strategic and, and, and interesting one on that side, is that we are working to change the paradigm of insurance from just being a reactive service that helps you after something bad happened 
and basically make you whole again, into a proactive service that helps you to mitigate and prevent a claim from happening to begin with. Now, obviously, you cannot do it all. You cannot really prevent a hurricane or a flood or a wildfire and so on. But there are many instances of damages to your home and claims that arise as a result of that that can be prevented by placing smart home devices, by having inspection, by having repairs done on time, and so on. So we tackle those two areas. We offer all of our customers a complimentary smart home devices kit that they, that they install in their home and leads to a significant discount on their policy and also helps them to better monitor their home. We also acquired a company called Shelter about a year ago that does this kind of preventative care. Obviously, before COVID, it was mostly what's on the ground. Now it's a bit more on the virtual side. But we take this approach of a triangle. You have the insurance policy that is much more comprehensive and modernized. You have the technology in the form of the smart home devices. And you have the third part, which is the services that allows it to actually fix stuff and prevent damage to begin with. The company was founded here in the Valley. The first office was in Mountain View in Castro Street. Now we're in Palo Alto, but we also have two other offices. The biggest office that we have is actually in Austin, Texas. And we also have a smaller office, but growing in Dallas. Texas as well. We are focused on home ownership. We believe that this is the area where you can basically create the most differentiation and value to the customer and not only just compete on price or distribution. And who are your competitors, if you can just mention a few? Sure. So before we get into the competitors, it's a huge, over $100 billion industry in the US in terms of premium that are being sold. So it's a large, very fragmented industry. So there is no one winner takes all dynamic because it's a product that is regulated on the state level. So you have different carriers, including the big ones that are strong here and not here and so on. So largely speaking, we're mostly aiming for customers that are shopping for insurance policies with the big guys. So State Farm, Farmers, Allstate, you name it. On the startup scene, obviously there are some startups that are also working in this field. It's a big industry that is more than enough for everybody. But the Lemonade is one, Swift, Keen, Branch, there are a few players that are working in this in this field as well. What was it like in the early days? Sure. Right now it seems like a haze. You need to start from scratch. You basically have the vision of the company, the investment funds, the deck, but the there was no product. There was nothing. So first, we basically jumped on a project that I did myself, which was to understand how insurance is being quoted today. So basically for the first, I think it was about two months, all I did was to do a very thorough and very comprehensive market research, going through the websites of at least a dozen of insurance companies, basically running through the quoting process to understand what they're asking, what are they prefilling, what is working, what is creating friction, what is not, understand the nuances, the disclaimer, inside out, completely understanding what is the industry standard. Then we made a bit of an unorthodox, I would say, uh, decision to focus very heavily on design and user experience from the very early days. We had the belief that we believe has been proven to be right, by the way, that the user experience and design is going to play a big role in creating a differentiated factor for us and also as a way to build trust which is so important when you are entering into a regulated financial serious industry and especially because from user experience and design was so low in the industry we actually wanted to double down on this area so we started to work with a pretty prominent design agency called work and co they are based in the east coast They've had numerous, much larger customers than, than us. So definitely not a trivial decision, neither for them, by the way, to work as an early stage company with such a prominent design agency. But the results were amazing. We had access to talent on the design side that as a super early seed stage company, you can't really dream of. And we basically got the design language and the user experience to be much more mature and friendly and comprehensive than we could have done it ourselves back in the day. Going back to the day for context, you were the first employee and, and the PM 
Yeah, I was the first employee after the two founders, yes. Did you make this call to hire this expensive external third-party design? So that was something that was part of our vision from the very beginning. It was something that our CEO and founder actually believed in very, very deeply. And he was very passionate about the importance uh, of the design and the user experience. And that was actually one of the reasons that I was compelled to join the journey and to start because I, I realized that working with Asaf on this one will be a great opportunity to have a big canvas that we could basically create the realization of our product on it. It goes to the point that when making such a decision about working for an early stage team, you need to understand the product is indeed a top of mind for the team and the design and the user experience is something that they are passionate about. And for me, that was actually a very strong vote of confidence that this is what the company should do. And it wasn't just words. It was willing to put the company's hard raised money on it, which for me was a very strong signal that this is the right call. At this point, did you have anybody that is a veteran from the insurance company background or any engineer in a company? Sure. So the other co-founder, Eyal, who was the CTO of the company back then, was the main engineer. Very shortly after I joined, he brought a few additional engineers that he got to work with in his past in his past life. So we started to have an in-house engineering team. On the insurance side, it was a bit more tricky. And on the insurance side, we relied heavily on consultant and actuarial firms at the beginning, in the early days, because, listen, we didn't know how to do this job. But nevertheless, we didn't just set them free with whatever you want and just bill us at the end of the of the month. You have to be on top of those things as they happen because you don't want consultants and other advisors to make decisions that are going to be critical for the company in later days. So I remember hours in conversation between me and the actuarial advisor going through exciting stuff, the curve of how much should it cost to rebuild the home based on the age and questioning that and understanding where the assumptions are coming from and how it can be optimized and what kind of coverage should be removed. Really, it was uh, it was. The, the reason I'm saying it was a kind of a haze because back in the day we were basically doing everything all the time if it was marketing, design, product, engineering, insurance as well, compliance, whatever it took to build the basic building blocks of the company and to get us off the ground. Yeah, when I look at your background and you came from a very large company, well, slightly smaller at the time because it was I think 2012, 2016, but still almost four years at LinkedIn in a critical time in that company's, uh, but they were already a large company. You couldn't really call yes. it back then at that point a startup. And then you go into a startup in insurance, I'm trying to imagine the learning curve here. Can you walk us through your personal evolution and also your team evolution? Ultimately, if you can also focus on how do you build a team and when do you decide to add an additional product manager? Sure. So first of all, on a personal note, let me start by saying, and I'll be very honest with that. I didn't know if I would like it. I didn't know if I would be successful in that. But you live only once and life is too short for just spending all of your working life in one place. So I wanted to experiment. So that was kind of my key driver, leaving LinkedIn into the most extreme opposite of the market, right? Back when I left, LinkedIn was almost 10,000 employees and I left joining a team of two. It doesn't get any more extreme than that other than founding your own uh, company. And, and honestly, I, I came very humble to this experience. I didn't know if I would be successful. I didn't know if the company would be successful. And I was mentally ready for the possibility that I will need to look for a job again in a year. And that would be completely fine by me. That was definitely an acceptable outcome that I was willing to accept. At the time, have they already raised money or not yet? Yeah, they raised money. That was just after the seed round. So we had a runway, but it doesn't guarantee anything. Luckily, it worked out okay, so I didn't need to look for a job since then, but I was definitely willing to accept that. The second thing is that, yes, the role 
has changed quite a bit. I, I used to joke that now I'm doing my third role at Epo in a way. So I joined as the head of product, but forget the title, it doesn't really matter. I basically joined as a PM, not even a senior PM. I joined as a PM. Uh, I basically had to understand the market to build the products, working with the designer and helping to build the team and so on. But basically at this stage, you do whatever it takes. You basically do whatever it takes. When we had to build an ops team in the middle of Nebraska, I flew out there, I worked with the team. It got nothing to do with uh, product, but someone had to do that. So you basically try to get as much done and identify the key priorities of the company. I have to say that one kind of interesting time or interesting experience I still remember is that coming from a big company, back at LinkedIn, I spent a lot of my time on planning and presenting and so on. When I came to Hippo, not immediately, but about six months, nine months in, I actually wanted to start this planning process. Very quickly, there is no value whatsoever in an organization that small back then. It was very clear for us what we need to work on, what is existential for the company. You don't have the luxury at this stage of the company not to work on something that is not existential for you. So it makes the planning process almost a moot point in a way. Fast forward a bit. We started to scale. We started to get some traction. And then you need to start scaling your operation. We wanted to maintain the, the spirit and the culture of a small team and not to basically expand as quickly as possible because keep in mind that when you're building a team, it comes with overhead. You create more friction, not only your burn rate increases, but it creates more friction, more politics, potentially communication and so on. And the philosophy we had, which I think is quite unique to, to Hippo, at least based on what I've seen, is not to hire bottom up, but to hire top down. What does it mean? In most functions, the way we worked is that we first hired the leaders, director, VP, C-level, no matter what, but we hired the, the leaders first and we hired leaders that were willing both to build the team, but also do the work themselves. And the concept was that we hired those people, they start to do the work themselves, and then they start to hire beneath them in order to fill the ranks where it's needed. And like everything in life has pros and cons, but it allows you as a, as a senior manager at the company to better delegate the different areas and to basically set and forget those issues. Because if you don't do that, if you hire someone who is two level below you first, you start with someone who needs a lot of handholding and micromanagement, and you don't create the leverage that is so crucial in a company that is growing fast. The con of that, obviously, is that it's difficult. It's just incredibly difficult, especially in the early days, to hire strong people that are senior and are willing to get their hands dirty. But if you had, uh, right now, you're in phase two, right? So how many employees do you recognize so, as phase two? So right now, I'm actually in phase three. Okay, uh, go back to phase two for a second. Yeah. How do you determine what, I mean, in your mind, what's the phase two? Is it like yeah, 50 so phase two 100? for me. Yeah, so phase two for me, let's put it a bit in the context of the product because I think it, there is a difference based on the function of the company. For me, phase two was around the time that we were scaling from our series C to series B. So the valuation of the company was approaching the 1 billion. We got to the 1 billion milestone with me and two PMs and one designer, which wow. was, to be completely honest, it was nuts. It was a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. It was a lot of fun. How many employees uh, at that point? I believe the company was about 200 employees at this point, maybe slightly less. But keep in mind that many of them were the support and the sales and call centers. So the engineering team was still smaller. That's surprising. 20. I would have expected you would have said from phase one to phase two, 50 employees, there's a different flavor of a company at that point. Was that not your experience? No, you... and it was the design offer. First of all, the, the number of the 200, 150 to 200 employees is a bit skewed because a lot of those employees are based in Austin and they are customer facing in the call center. But the engineering team was smaller than that. The engineering team was about 20, 25 at that time. So I think it's a bit more aligned with what you're saying, but yeah. some of it was by design. We actually tried to preserve the ability to be nimble and efficient for as long as we could. And I think the milestone of getting to this valuation with such a small team was the decisive factor for us that, okay, we, we've done it. Now we can relax a bit, 
and scale. This is the third phase where I'm at at the moment, which is about not only about doing half of as a PM and half of my time managing a team, but 95% of my time now is about scaling a team and scaling the product as a whole and not just doing the spec writing myself. Even to be completely honest, I still enjoy doing that every now and then. So you're in the th- third phase right now. What is the size today? How many PMs? Yeah, so many... we have about seven PMs, three designers, and currently hiring for two more positions. So it's still small, but obviously it's an order of magnitude different than how it was uh, a year and a half ago. You said it was between three people, two PMs and yourself. You took it to the edge. You, you then raised Series C, and then you started to scale. Walk us through those decisions. Why did you take yourself to the edge with just 3 PMs in your department? If you could have gone to 5 or 6 or 7, walk us through your thinking yeah. in each stage. There, there are a few things. First of all, scaling the team comes with a cost. And people often overlook that. But when you hire more people, you actually need to manage them. You need to onboard them. You need to create communication. More than that, you don't know at a certain point in the company's life, you still don't know where you will need to have those people working, in which areas. And third, when the COVID crisis is coming, hurts, you want to be in a position where you don't need to start having difficult conversation with the team because you created a burn rate that is not sustainable. So we always try to be a bit on the conservative side and to be smart about how we hire and how we manage the team and how we scale. But it goes deeper. I'll take the question a bit into a different direction, which is how did we decide when and how to hire eventually? And this is something that we had a bit of a different philosophy. We didn't hire randomly or didn't hire to different places and say, okay, they will do X and then Y and so on. The thought process was a bit different here. If I would summarize it, we let the market dictate where and how we would hire. What happened was that we saw some initial traction in a certain area that was important for the company. We started to double down on that. In many cases, I was the one personally wrote the spec and worked with the engineers to start developing this area. And when it became basically unmanageable, then we decided to hire for this role. So by doing that, it's painful, first of all, I'll I'll be the first one to admit, but by doing that, you make sure that you are hiring for the right position because this is where the company and the business actually needs additional support. And second, you make sure that you hire at the right time because there is enough work to make someone busy and to have a complete autonomy uh, and so on. And it helps in another more subtle way that it gives you the scope of work to attract top talent and usually top talent want to have a broad scope of responsibility and understanding that they would be able to make an impact. So this is something that helps you in that sense as well, because you don't come up with a uh, job description. We come up with a very specific set of problems that are hurting for the company. And this person needs to basically jump in and help you starting day one. And it's difficult. I'm not saying it's not, but it paid big time for us again and again and again with almost every single hire I made on my team. Aviat, can you talk real quickly about how you go about selecting individuals for your team? What do you look for in that 45-minute conversation? Sure. Yeah. So usually when I have the preliminary conversation, it's mostly about understanding the person, what is driving them, where are they coming from, how motivated they are, is there a pattern of excellence and outstanding results in their life, career, educational career, and so on. And then when we go deeper into the conversation, we usually go deeper into a certain set of case studies to understand how they work in different environments on key problems, how strong is the business thinking, which is very crucial in a product role, in a company such as Hippo that is very much business-driven. We also usually do a product exercise that we ask the candidate to solve a specific problem in the insurance space, but it's a very customer-facing product problem. And as an interviewer, what are some subtleties that you look for that might sort of raise a flag? Because the time just runs so quickly. Yeah, accountability or the lack of, measuring what you do, making decisions based on metrics, listening to the customer, 
I know it's trivial, but you can't really be successful without it. And clarity of communication and verbally, obviously. That's the question. Sure. Uh, by the way, I wish I could take the credit for this. Uh, it's not just on me. It's, it was a truly team effort, but more than happy to share how we went about it. So in the very early days, the company mostly started as a B2C. And obviously, I won't be revealing a big secret if I would say that in the early days of every B2C company, getting customers is incredibly difficult. You need to pull your friends by the ear. And even then, it, it's incredibly difficult. And we lacked the amount of traffic for the site and the amount of users to gain meaningful feedback that would allow us to improve the experience and to understand what are we doing wrong, what are we doing right, and so on. So there was an idea that actually came from our CEO of trying to get some agents into the site to use it and to sell EPO policies to their customers. And we turned to Rick, who is a seasoned insurance executive with a vast network in this uh, in this field. And he said, yeah, of course, no problem. Within a week, he arranged for some of his friends and colleagues to use our website as a trial for an experimentation. And obviously, we gave them some reward and so on, just to get their input on what do they think works well and what doesn't work well when using Hippo. It was great. We got what we needed. And then we told them, thank you, guys. We appreciate your time. Best of luck. And they were like, no, 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 don't do that. We actually want to keep using the system. And we're like, okay, that's interesting. We might be onto something here. And apparently, there are many cases when you are looking at the business model of traditional insurance companies, all of the big ones, practically, in many cases, when their core product is not competitive or unavailable in a certain area or for a certain customer, instead of losing the customer or the lead, they will prefer to sell a third-party policy that is not their product, and they will still get paid by the commission, but at least they also retain the customer they don't have the risk of losing the other business that the customer has with them and so on. So apparently it was a practice that happened in the industry. We weren't fully aware of it back then in the very, very early days. And what we brought to the table was a system that because it was designed with a consumer mindset, the agents loved it. And I heard it in my own ears. In the time it takes me to, to write one big insurance company policy, I can write four HIPAA policies. So basically, the, the experience is much better for them. The customer's satisfaction was through the roof because of all the improvement we've done to the product itself. And we decided to basically productize it and to scale it. We built a whole suite of product around this concept. Uh, very slowly, it started to diverge from the original concept of consumer-facing product. And we built this B2B2C suite of products, which became one of the largest, fastest growing growth drivers for the company. So we almost stumbled on that, but I think it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cool story because we built something with a customer-centric approach and it's proven to be completely relevant for the B2B2C use case that became one of the biggest growth uh, drivers for the company. And this collaboration between the CEO's vision, the insurance team's network and understanding of the business and the product and tech allowed this thing to actually happen. Embracing your competition driven by consumer demand and doing what's best for the customer in the end and making a win-win-win. A great story. So we're about almost finished. And Aviad, we wanted to ask you, just get a glimpse into your creativity. So pick something different than what you're doing on a daily basis. Invent something in a couple of minutes for us. It's, it's funny that you ask, but one thing that I've been partially involved in because of the work that we do at Hippo, but it's not called what we do, is the, is the mortgage process. I know it's very sexy, very uh, very hot uh, topic. But if I if I were to, to build a product and a process from scratch, that would be it. And by the way, it goes beyond the product. I think that the underlying business model, the alignment of incentives is not aligned. The underwriting models could be improved and are completely antiquated and not personalized and not automated and not using the right form of data. By the way, there are companies that are doing some interesting things on that front. Uh, Better Mortgage is one great example. There is also 
also Bland who is tackling this problem from a different perspective. But when I'm looking at antiquated, but yet so critically and big and important indices, mortgage is the first one that comes to mind. And if I had like, you know, a clean slate, and again, it's easier said than done, but this is definitely one area where I think there is a lot of room for innovation, both from the customer experience, the technology leverage, and also from the underlying business model and how things are done. From a customer perspective, are you thinking long-term, just being able to be pre-approved and literally without having to go through the process of applying? Is that what you think? Yeah, by the way, beautiful? just to clarify, I'm talking completely without the hat of a CPO at Hippo. It's got nothing yeah, to do with what we course. do. It's based on my personal curiosity. But yes, I think there is a lot of room for creating underwriting models, for example, for your eligibility, for the right price that you need to pay, that are not based on just large numbers and averages, but rather about your personal financial situation and circumstances, I think the industry is not doing that. They are basically used to put you in a kind of in a template. If you fit this mold, then fine. If you don't fit this mold, you move into the other bucket. It can be better in 2020 when you have access to so many more sophisticated data models, technology, and so on. And of course, the user experience is part of it, but I think the core opportunity for improvement here is mostly about the underlying decision-making process and how they're being made, so to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes a lot of sense, actually, because uh, it is very painful, right? Before you go to buy a house, you're thinking, okay, let me get all my duckies in a row, so I'll have to do it in a particular stretch of time, so it causes you to not think about buying a house until you're really, really in that pain of needing to buy one. And it sounds, from your perspective, there is other ways of justifying when, if, and how to make you an offer, and that sounds uh, amazing. So, how would you like to have people approach you, and for what? Are you hiring? Are you offering yourself to be in some advisory? What interests you that kind of thing. Sure. So first of all, I always enjoy talking to smart people. It's always fun. And there is always an opportunity to learn new stuff and to be inspired by interesting, cool stuff that people have, have done. By the way, in the early days of people, when we came to the design agency, I came with a slide filled with numerous companies that we looked up at. Uh, and I was like, this is what we want to be when we grow up or something along those lines in terms of the design equity. So I, I, it's always a pleasure to talk to experienced, capable people. Specifically, we are currently hiring in my team for two positions for senior PM slash principal PM level, depends on the experience, requires some sort of either consumer-facing experience or SMB experience. Both are very critical for the future strategy of the company. So very important hires to make in my mind in the next few weeks. But obviously the company is very dynamic and growing very fast. So I have no doubt that there are going to be additional opportunities that are going to open up in the next few months. So always happy to have those conversations. We had some instances where we had conversation with candidates and people. And after a few months, there was the right opening or the right circumstance in life that allowed them to basically join us. I firmly believe that it's worth waiting for the right person and sometimes style needs to be aligned. So even if we don't have any position that is relevant right now, it's always a pleasure to talk to people and things might line up in the future. And yes, always happy to share my experience and what we've been through with Hippo with other earlier stage companies and if it can be any help and if there is an opportunity for me to give back to the community, it would be my pleasure. Great. People can reach out to you through LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn is and... fine. Email is fine. It's aviadedhippo.com. Very easy. Luckily, it's not using my last name. So very easy. <laughs> yeah, a long last name. Exactly. Excellent. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Neil. Shonatova. Have a sweet, sweet, sweet year. All right. Bye, guys. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.